0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. I wanted to record a little bit of a pre-roll for today's show. First and foremost, the gain on my mic was a little bit too high at certain times, so there's some distortion. I assure you that it annoys me way more than it will annoy you. With that out of the way, the person featured is Derek Whalen. He is my step-cousin growing up. And ever since this kid was 11 years old, all I've watched him do is make his own money. And he started in magic. Then I went to DJing and he did like the high school dances. He did bar and bat mitzvahs in Boca Raton, Florida. That is a pretty book schedule is probably the best way to say it. After that, he went to Full Sail and he's pursued a career being an entrepreneur. He manages musicians. I think that it's a really interesting lens that he brings to the discussion. The show is called The Business Brew because I want to highlight not just investors, but stories in business, CEOs, entrepreneurs, anyone that's worth talking to, and I think that Derek is definitely that. The music discussion starts around the 38-minute mark or something like that, and he really breaks down what it's like to uh, manage artists in the industry. And talks a little bit about why labels are necessary, his relationship with Spotify and Apple. I think it's an interesting conversation that a lot of people can learn something from. So I thank Derek for joining me. It was nice to catch up with him, it's been a while, and I hope you all enjoy. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. I got a super special guest. My cousin, Derek Whalen, ex DJ Derek Whalen, now manages artists in the music industry. We're going to talk a little bit about Spotify, the labels, his business, his history as an entrepreneur. I'll probably bring up your start as a magician. I just did. <laughs> anyway, I don't think there's too many disclaimers that we need on this one, but as always, not financial advice and do your own due diligence. Derek, how you doing, man?
1: I'm good, Bill. And yeah, to your audience, definitely do not listen to me for financial advice at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not really fair because ever since I've known you, you have hustled your way to making your own money. From like, when did you start making your own money as an entrepreneur?
1: It's always been in some form of the entertainment business. And it started doing magic shows for birthday parties and stuff when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. 50 bucks a show, 100 bucks a show, a little extra for balloon animals, stuff like that. If I
0: recall correctly, you abused your brother and made him your labor force without paying him. Is that accurate?
1: Not only my brother, but my parents as well. My brother was my early roadie at about eight years old. He would show up and I would have him like lugging a trunk of magic tricks. And of course, my parents were my drivers that would drive me around wherever I got booked.
0: Were they your booking agents or were you doing your own booking?
1: I think most of it was going through me. But at some point, somebody wrote an article in like the Palm Beach Post or something and put our home phone number there that was like, call the Whalens if you want to book Derek for your children's birthday party. And I mean, I'm like 10 years old. So then like the phone starts ringing and it's, hey, uh, I'm calling a book Derek for my birthday party. And, you know, whoever would pick up the phone would kind of handle the booking at the time or pass it off to me. So it was pretty funny. Early experience in the amateur entertainment biz. Indeed. And what you were like,
0: how many weekends a month were you working? Because it seemed like you were always busy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that between the bookings, which were, oh, it's been so long now, but it was pretty frequent, maybe at least a couple a month. And then also, you know, my mom is very involved in philanthropy. And so she took it upon herself to get me booked at every hospital and homeless shelter and children's facility. So in between all of my paid gigs, I did a lot of volunteer work as well. So I was quite the workhorse at 11 years old in the field of birthday parties and corporate magic.
0: What was your favorite trick to do?
1: My favorite thing to do was I loved up close card magic doing card tricks. Yeah, you were good at those. So those were my favorite because it was like right in your face, but it was hard to kind of do a card trick on stage. I don't know how, at like 10 or 11 years old, I was getting into these rabbit holes, but I kind of became obsessed with these card musicians. Now I'm saying musicians because I'm sw- I'm moving ahead, but magicians who were able to basically do a card trick at a huge scale on stage and like do a really little trick but make a big show out of it in front of a crowd. So I started, I didn't develop this trick, but I started developing my own version of a trick where basically somebody would pick a card I'd bring them up on stage, I'd have them pick a card, and I was 11 years old, so I would pretend that I was messing up the trick, and I didn't know, and I screwed it up, and I couldn't figure out what their card was. And then I would throw the deck of cards against a wall or a big surface, slam it out of crazy frustration, and their card would be taped up on the wall or on the ceiling or whatever it was, and then it evolved, then I would start doing stuff like having them sign the card. I would have them sign the card and rip it up, and then I would throw it, and then their card would be there. Except for the one piece that was torn out that I would then hand them and see if it matched. And I would kind of expand on that. That was probably my signature trick as an 11-year-old magician. How did you get
0: it to stick on the wall? I was always impressed with that trick. You would do that at family gatherings and I always, my mind was blown.
1: Tape, Bill. Tape.
0: (laughs) I mean, I guess that makes sense. How do you make sure that it hits the wall the correct way?
1: It's in the throw, right? I had to practice the throw and, you know, back to my brother as an assistant, sometimes what would be really effective is if I had him hiding out on the other side of a window or something. So then I could throw the cards at the wall and then he would stick it up on the other side of the window exactly when I hit it. So then the card went through the glass. The parents and grandparents would lose their minds. They would not understand what was going on there. Yeah, that would be mind blowing. Magic's fun. There's a lot of metaphors for life and entertainment and the broader showbiz environment that I learned early doing magic and getting up in front of people and entertaining them. And what's the best way to say, not deceiving them, but deceiving them for, you know, putting on a show, putting up the facade, showing the fun side of things, giving everyone the glossy image while you keep the behind the scenes stuff behind the scenes. And that's a lot of what we do in all aspects of showbiz, as you might imagine.
0: Yeah, for sure. So when did you get into DJing? Because that was closer to high school, right?
1: Yeah, more middle school. So I pretty much seamlessly transitioned from doing magic shows every weekend of maybe fourth, fifth, sixth grade to then immediately DJing almost every weekend from when I was 12 to when I was 18. I DJed at least one or two bar mitzvahs, weddings or corporate events a weekend without fail. And again, That was early on before I could drive. My parents were my roadies again. It was a lot worse for them in the DJ world because they'd be picking me up at like midnight or two in the morning or whatever, West Palm, Miami. But my parents were staying up all night to come pick me up from DJ gigs. But that kind of started when I was 11 or 12. And it was just like a natural progression as I got deeper into music, as I kind of knew what was going on in the world more and also kind of was getting closer to being a teenager. And Magic wasn't the coolest thing.
0: Yeah, no, it was tough to get girls as a magician, huh?
1: Yeah, I mean, and honestly, though, now people look back and say, oh, you were a DJ. You must have been so cool back then. But when I was in middle school and high school, being a DJ wasn't as cool as it is now. It was kind of like being part of the AV club. You were the guys that would set up the audio gear for the assembly and maybe get to play a song So and then do the dance. So it wasn't as exciting, but I did kind of get ahead of the curve and I got to soak up some of the DJ coolness, right or wrong, at the height of DJs becoming in vogue a little bit later on in my career. You did school dances, like you
0: said, though. You did some pretty big high school dances, didn't you?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was in middle school, I was DJing the proms for the local public and private high schools in town and even DJing when there weren't really any local nightclubs, but when a nightclub in West Palm on Clematis Street or somewhere in South Beach had a teen night and they were trying to get kids from Boca, Palm Beach area, and they were trying to get the high school kids. I would DJ, but I was like 15. But yeah, definitely the bread and butter at the time was school dances. Early on, but then heavy with the bar mitzvahs and weddings in South Florida through all of middle school and high school, definitely.
0: Bar mitzvah season's the best season.
1: You know what? In Boca Raton, Florida, it, it never e- stops. It's, it's evergreen, yeah. <laughs> it's a good gig. It's a good gig for
0: sure. I used to love bar mitzvahs. Manashevitz was my go to at the time.
1: You know, I do miss DJing all of those private events because compared to clubs where you're like there till four in the morning, you have your general manager screaming at you like the athletes want rap, the Euros want dance, the ladies want Rihanna, and you know, there's vendors and there's customers and there's action. It's like when you do a wedding or a bar mitzvah, you're done at 11, they feed you, they tip you, you're giving them the best day of their life. It's great.
0: Yeah, everybody's happy with you.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) So you moved on, you went
1: to Full Sail, right? Yes, I went to Full Sail in Winter Park, Florida. What was that conversation like with your parents? I feel like you might have some inside information on this, Bill.
0: Well, I like to let everybody know.
1: I don't actually know the backstory of all this. There's nothing major, but my dad is definitely like a corporate guy. He worked for GE, sold the company to Siemens. Thought I was gonna go on like a corporate business track, and definitely would have preferred if I went to a traditional four-year university. But from a very early age, I mean, that place full sale. There's a lot to say about it, but one is that it is a marketing machine. And from a very early age, I was very aware that there was a really cool school that was like Disneyland for audio equipment, video game design, film. And it was crazy. I was very aware of that from a very young age and probably by mid high school, I was telling my parents, this is the school I'm going to go to. If I'm going to go to college, I want to go to the place with the studios and the sound stages and all that stuff. And there was pretty much no convincing me otherwise. So hats off to the full sale marketing team. Did you feel like your experience there matched up with their marketing materials? In terms of the facilities, absolutely. They advertise to people who want to be in the entertainment industry. There is an admissions process, but it's not that rigorous. And so I would say that it was a great experience. But in terms of the motivation level of the other students, there was like a few students who you knew instantly are going to go on to actually be in this business. And then there were some others that it was just like they're here because They didn't want to go to a real university, and it seems cool. But that being said, I do keep in touch with and kind of follow through social media some of my former classmates that have gone on to do some great things in the music business. One's a well-known hip-hop producer. One owns a record store in Detroit. Everyone's kind of went on to do some cool things. So yeah, it's a cool community of people that all kind of took their own different paths in the biz.
0: A guy I know that worked at Disney Animation was at Full Sail for a little while.
1: So the thing is, I was in the audio engineering program, which was like learning about recording studios and software, and that was amazing. And then I was in the music business program, which was okay, but what I think where Full sale is amazing is in the computer animation and video game design, that stuff. I mean, I would walk by some of those labs and see those guys. It looked like a stereotypical movie. It looked like they were shooting a movie and it was all fake. There were guys in clusters typing on black screens with white lettering and then above them would be rendering monitors of crazy dragon video games. I was like, they really do it like this? This is crazy. So it's a cool place, definitely.
0: You know it's a cool thing to check out. Do you have Disney Plus? I do, yes. The making of Frozen 2 is like a very cool documentary.
1: Oh cool. I would like to see that. I actually have only watched on Disney Plus 2 programs, the Taylor Swift concert film, I guess you would call it. (laughs) This you shouldn't admit to. It's research. (laughs) I'm in the biz. She's actually quite good. Yeah, she's a great songwriter. Her most recent quarantine two albums are pretty cool stuff, I have to say. What happened with this second one? The second one feels like B-roll. I think what really happened is that first album, Folklore, you know, she was collaborating with Aaron Dressner from The National and Jack Antonoff. And they did this album, and it was kind of a departure from what she normally was making. And it was very well received. And Yeah, I thought it was excellent. And I mean, I'd never honestly listened to a Taylor Swift album front to back before. And I thought it was excellent. And then the next album, Evermore, the general critical consensus, I listen to a lot of like music criticism podcasts and read a lot of music critics. The general consensus was that it was kind of like the leftovers. But really, when you dig into it a little more, if you start being a nerd and reading the liner notes like I do, you would know that folklore was really made remotely. Taylor was at home. Aaron was at his studio in New York. Maybe they got together a few times, but there were a bunch of different recording locations. But then Evermore was all recorded at Aaron Dressner's house at Long Pond Studios where they filmed that Disney concert film. So it seemed like what happened is they all got together to film film the folklore movie for Disney Plus where they got in the studio and basically performed the songs from the album. And then it seemed like they stayed a little longer and were having fun and said, hey, let's like stay in this groove and keep making music and kept making more songs in that vein altogether. And so it was kind of like a continuation of that. It's like the folklore evermore era, like the folkmore era, I think is like what a lot of the, (laughs) the, the Taylor fans are calling it.
0: That's interesting. So it's like they just kept vibing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you believe the TikTok conspiracy theories, there is a third album coming from the series, but I don't know. That's what the Taylor stans, as they say, are saying.
0: I can't see how that would possibly be wrong. If it's on TikTok and the internet, it has to be correct. The people that are doing that kind of research probably are nerding out big time. They may be right.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's kind of part of Taylor Swift's brand. If you look at her as kind of like A case study at some of the things that she continues to do to engage her fans is like Easter eggs and fun puzzles and putting everything together is a huge kind of part of her shtick. So it would make a lot of sense that she was dropping some clues for the hardcore fans that would then lead them to discover the next album title or whatever it may be.
0: I thought she did a 60 minute interview and somebody said to her that she was talking about having a conversation. She said, Somebody said, That I can do anything because I'm Taylor Swift. And my answer to them was, I can't do anything because I'm Taylor Swift. Everything I do is about this brand. And she was young when she had that interview. That girl's a machine.
1: It's insightful that she realized that as a young age. I mean, a lot of people, whether it's in music or in the public eye, it's like everything becomes public facing and about the brand and even like working with an up and coming artist. I work with a lot of young artists, like 21 year old songwriters, 21 year old musicians, and they've grown up on Instagram and social media and Snapchat as their way of expressing themselves. And to me, Instagram is a marketing tool. It's interesting, even that trying to break down that wall where they're like, no, this is my way of personally expressing myself. Like this is where I put up funny pictures or whatever. This is now your billboard for the world. This is how we need to express your brand and express you as an artist. And maybe you should have a finstagram as they call it, a separate Instagram for your friends.
0: I mean, I go through that a little bit with Twitter. It's quite a bit different, but that's how I do basically my personal marketing for lack of a better term. And I think that since this podcast dropped, I have backed off it used to be a lot of just like straight stock stuff it's gotten a lot more personal and thanking people you know to engage for listening to the podcast but I care more about this thing than I do about anything else right now so that's what it's going to pivot to it is really interesting how the reach of these platforms and the connection that you get to people I would have laughed in the past if you told me that I made like friends and relationships off of the internet and Twitter but it's happened if that makes me a nerd that's what I am
1: it's really incredible. And I don't think it makes you a nerd. I think it makes you savvy. I mean, nothing that's really of value. I mean, you're a creator right now. And anything that's of value that comes from a creator or something that comes from a creative outlet, it's on an island. There has to be some kind of community aspect to it. Your podcast wouldn't work if you weren't part of a broader community or ecosystem that it fit into. And that's kind of what we try to achieve with our music clients is especially if they're developing or new. It's like, where do they fit in? What community, what scene are you a part of that's going to support you and interact with you and collaborate with you? And I think that's why your podcast seems to be working well and picking up a following. It's not because you just started it on your first day on Twitter, but you waited until you were part of a community. And I mean, maybe you weren't looking for it. It just kind of happened. And then it was just a natural progression to have this extension of your Twitter content via audio.
0: No, that's right. And I do another podcast, and that sort of introduced me to the medium. There were just some things that I felt were lacking in other things. And I said, All right, well, let's get on here and see if I can do something that people like. And they seem to like it. And I like doing it. So it continues. When you're building. So taking a step back, but before you started, or was it concurrently your management company, you were DJing in Miami, right?
1: Yes. So. Kind of the trajectory was I had been doing like the private event stuff as a DJ in in high school. And by the time I was probably a senior in high school, I started getting a little interested in the club world and wasn't old enough to go as a patron.
0: I'm sure that kept you out.
1: Yeah, but I was able to do my research in other ways and managed to get in even some gigs. You know, they wouldn't ask you how old you were if you were booked to DJ there. So I would start working my way into a few clubs in South Florida or bars. And then when I went to college, again, about community and having an ecosystem, even though I went to school in Winter Park, Florida, which is right outside of Orlando at Full Sail, a lot of kids that I knew from growing up in South Florida were attending UCF, University of Central Florida in East Orlando. It's like, I think it might be one of the biggest schools in the country by attendance.
0: Yeah, that school's massive.
1: Their football program was starting, and it was kind of starting to become a quote-unquote real school and not like a commuter school like some of the other Florida schools.
0: I was wondering when that started. So that started when you were in college, roughly?
1: Yeah, they were just getting college. I don't know nothing about sports, but their football team went into semi legit division or something or conference, and things were starting to pick up. They had just built some new arenas and stadiums, and there was kind of a big influx. It was around 2007, 2008. I kind of was adjacent to the whole UCF community, and I actually made a conscious choice to not live with all the other full sale nerds in Winter Park like me and live with a bunch of social fun kids, guys that I knew from growing up in South Florida. So I was living in a house with all UCF kids that were in frats, that were going to parties, etc. So even though I was driving a winter park, going in the studio all night, I still had this whole crew to come back to that were going out every night, that were going to fraternity and sorority parties. And so they kind of started saying, Hey, you should DJ at these UCF bars. You've DJed in South Beach, you DJ'd in Miami, like you should do it at where we go out. And so then Started DJing at all the local UCF bars, and then that led to DJing at clubs in downtown Orlando. And then by the end of my college experience, I was kind of driving down to Miami every weekend to DJ in South Beach, because by that time, all of our friends were of age. And the bottle service in South Beach was at a huge height, and open format DJing and bottle service was everywhere. And they wanted to have an opening DJ who would bring out some young 22 to 25 year olds that would round out the crowd from all of the 40 to 50 year old bottle spenders that were there. And so that was kind of my way of getting to start DJing at a lot of clubs in Miami. And they would book me as the opener, sometimes opener and closer where you would go on. Oh,
0: dude, that's a brutal night. So what then you got to like go away till two and then you come back on from two to four or something.
1: Exactly. So when I was in college I started driving down to do that on the weekends, but then when second I graduated I moved to Miami full time and I was when I first got to Miami, that was my life. It would be like the Tuesday night shift. I would DJ at this club called Louis, which was in the Gansvort, the lobby of the Gansvort in South Beach, which is now the Gansvort. That property is now the one hotel, actually, if anyone's familiar with South Beach. But back then, it was a really cool club. I mean, in Miami, people party till 5 a.m. on a Tuesday. It's crazy. I mean, it would blow your mind, but I would DJ from 11 to 4. And I would DJ straight through because I was the resident DJ and it was Tuesday. And then on Saturday, I would DJ at the same club and they would have an advertised DJ like from Vegas or somebody else who was on kind of the national scene. And I would DJ from 10 or 11 until 1 or 1.30. They would play from about 1.30 to 3.30 and then I would get back on from 3.30 to 5.
0: What time are you going to bed when this goes on? You're not going to sleep till like 8 a.m., right?
1: Oh, 100%, because I mean, after you've been DJing for a crowd for so long, you need to kind of unwind. If you were going to record this podcast at 10 p.m. for two hours and then got off, you would probably go watch some TV, hang out.
0: Oh, dude, that's when I worked at Jake's Dilemma up on the west side, we'd get off at four and then we'd like do all the stuff where we're counting the cash and cleaning the bar. Five thirty, we'd probably go get the after work meal. I mean, there were times that I'd be coming in and my roommate would be going to work and I'd be going to bed. and It was bizarre for a little while. I didn't see the sun for like a week at one point. I mean, that's maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but not really.
1: It's funny because in New York, the bartenders after work at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. are going to the diner. But in Miami, after work, everyone in the service industry is going to like space, which is like an Ibiza style club that's open all night. And for, for after hours, well, back then space was open more. Now they're only on the weekends. But Now, for example, guaranteed pretty much any night of the week, the whole service industry crowd, when they get off of work, they'll go to 11, which is well-known. It's like a 24-hour nightclub, strip club, restaurant, a huge Vegas-style monstrosity in downtown Miami. Actually, across the street from my office, I look at it out my window... (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) Monday mornings, it's like 9am. I went to sleep early the night before and I pull onto 11th Street in downtown Miami and Space, which is the club I mentioned before. There's a line of ravers outside still waiting to get in. And then at 11, the strip club across the street, people rolling out in their suits and stuff. Miami's a trip, man. It's pretty crazy. The hours were crazy. I was DJing all night. And to get back to your question, right around the time I moved to Miami after college. I was 21, 22. It was 2009, 2010. I was a college kid who all I cared about was DJing. So that was the height of my DJ career, quote unquote, because back to the whole community thing. In college, what would happen is I would make mixtapes. They would go on SoundCloud or just sharing MP3s via file sharing networks. And I would make a mixtape and then my friends would send it out to friends. And then kids at Indiana would be part in Bloomington would be partying to my mixtapes. And then kids in wherever at Syracuse would be listening to my mixtapes and just kind of through that natural college kids circuit. And so I kind of ended up having fans from all these different, well, not, I mean, quote unquote fans. You did have fans. How'd you get flown out? What was it? Dubai? Was that in college? That was during college. Yeah, so I would kind of built a name for myself and I was able to travel around and like the big weekends, like Little Five was a big weekend in Bloomington and in the University of Indiana, I would go and DJ their party at Little Five. At the time, there was a promoter who was about my age and he got all the DJs that were kind of my peers, me, uh, Jesse Marco from New York, some other guys, and would send us to play for all the kids that were abroad. In Rome, in Florence, in Barcelona, because there are American kids that went to school at University of Miami or Syracuse or Indiana or UCF that would do a semester abroad. And so I went to Europe and I DJed for all American kids that were going to school in Rome for the semester or in Barcelona. That was a lot of fun. But again, I would see hotel room club plane. Then I ended up getting a club gig in Dubai, basically off the strength of having a little name for myself in the United States on the college and club circuit. And so then, yeah, I just kind of used that to get myself in the door at a lot of clubs in Miami, became the resident DJ at a lot of places. And at the same time, I had discovered Amtrak, my first client, who's still a client to this day, 10 years later. That was kind of the start of everything. Would you guys DJ together? So yeah, it's funny. He is totally from the electronic world. He plays, for lack of a better term, if you went to go see his DJ set, it would be underground house music.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's pretty like chill wave type. It's cool.
1: Yeah, like chill, dance stuff. He just put out an album that was much more like indie rock and everything. But if you he would go DJ, you could go see him in Ibiza and it's a bunch of people on the dance floor having a great time or he does a lot of DJ sets in New York, San Francisco pre-COVID, obviously. But yeah, back then I was a lot more focused on myself as a DJ. And I would DJ for him his first show ever at Webster Hall in New York City. When we first signed him, I was the opening DJ for that. And it was just I DJed and then he performed. These days, I would never try to DJ with one of my clients. (laughs) I mean, it's actually (laughs) making my... Well, it was a different time. It was a scrappy startup, right? Yeah, I mean, it's actually making my skin crawl thinking about that I would put myself on the bill (laughs) with one of my own clients. But it was just a different time. We were just kind of hustling and doing our thing. And, you know, at the time, nobody knew who he was, but all of our friends and our whole network and everyone who we could get to show up to the show knew who I was. So it was just, we were working with what we got.
0: So how do you know to sign him? How did that go down? You saw him do a couple
1: sets and you were just like, I like this guy? Well, actually, I'd never seen him DJ. I'd only heard his production, his music that he made. And what basically happened is it was at the very end of college. I'd already been driving down to Miami every weekend. So I went to school for audio engineering. My original path is I really wanted... I love the studio. I love the gear. I thought I was going to be an audio engineer, which is basically someone who mixes record.
0: What does that mean in super noob terms? What is someone that mixes a record? Like, what are they actually doing?
1: It's really important. and. Some artists mix their own music, some producers mix, but there's mixers who will get huge money or even a royalty on a record because they're so good at mixing. And so that's basically, if you imagine a, at a very basic level, right, if you imagine a recording studio in your head and you picture that big board that you see with all the buttons and all the faders, each one of those vertical setups with a fader and a bunch of knobs. It's all repeated. It's the same thing over and over. It's just a bunch of inputs. And so if you think about it, if I'm a rock band and I go in and record, I might have 20 inputs into that board while I'm recording. I might have eight drum microphones, uh, then a drum machine, then I plug in my guitar, then I record my vocals, then I do another vocal take, then I record my own backup vocals. And so then you have all these elements that are back in the day recorded to tape now recorded into your computer. And then the mixer is literally the person who sits there And plays with the knobs and faders or plays with the computer and finds that perfect sound and make sure it's all balanced together and make sure the drums are balanced, that the vocal sits at the perfect place and... It's not just mixing, but it's a lot of processing. And so everyone kind of has their stack of either outboard gear or in the box, in the computer gear that they use. And it's compressors, limiters, equalizers, gates, all types of audio gear that you would use to make every single sound sound perfect on its own and then to all match together. You're the coordinator of all the sound, huh? Exactly. And then there's another person who masters it. And so basically what you would do is On an individual song level, you mix the song and you bring all the instruments together, right? Then you might have a full album of songs. They're already mixed and they sound good, but then the mastering engineer, they basically do something similar to what the mixing engineer does, but they only do it with the main mix, with the left and the right. So the mixer will take a hundred tracks and either on the board in real life or in the computer, mix them all together and you get a stereo left and right. That's what you're gonna listen to in your headphones. Then the mastering engineer will take that stereo left and right track, and then we'll do additional processing to make it sound broadcast or radio ready. And maybe they have a whole album, and to make everything sound sonically unified, they'll maybe do the same audio processing in a very light and nuanced way across the entire album, and that's the mastering process to kind of make it all sound sonically cohesive.
0: So when you're like talking to Amtrak and you thought that you, well, you did have these skills, was your pitch to him, come join me and I'll make sure that all that stuff is taken care of, or we'll do your promotion. How's your career veer into management?
1: Okay. So yes, basically I love mixing in the studio. I love the gear. I love recording. Dude,
0: I'm just thinking real quick when you got to sit in Dr. Dre's chair, that must've been sick for you.
1: I told you that story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, that's
0: insane. I mean, given like what you like to do and to be in that chair, that'd be nuts.
1: But I do have to give a disclaimer. That wasn't because of any special accolade or because I was deserving of it. What actually happened is I had a client Who's being wooed by Interscope Records and they have Dr. Dre's studio. They have a full like compound and they're like, this is Dr. Dre's studio that we built for him. Do you guys want to sit in the chair behind the board? So, but I mean, hey, that really worked. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, you can have anything that you want that we have. (laughs) Yeah. We ate that up. We're like, you don't need to give an advance. Can we just meet Dr. Dre? That would be cool. Wasn't that about Amtrak? No, that was about another client at the time, but the way I kind of veered into management is while I was in audio engineering school, I was talking you know, my teachers, I was learning about the engineering world, and I really quickly learned that it was going to be a long, grueling process to be where I wanted to be, and a lot of it was kind of about waiting to get lucky. I mean, you could say a lot of things in the music business are about waiting to get lucky, but as a manager, I can be proactive. I can. Pick up the phone. If I think one of my clients has a song that belongs in Starbucks, I could find Howard Schultz's email and hit him up and say, "I want you to listen to the song." I didn't do that, but a friend of mine did, and it worked.
0: So you're talking about like on the Starbucks CD that they used to sell, or like, are you talking about playing in Starbucks corporate?
1: No, I'm just thinking about that because actually I was catching up a few days ago with someone who worked in the agency world, who's now a manager, and he was telling me a story. We were catching up, I mean, it's been like 10 years.
0: I'm just curious how that happened.
1: No, he was telling me a story and I just loved it so much because I was like, I should be doing this kind of stuff. (laughs) Is He was managing a band. They were signed to Republic, which is part of Universal Music Group. Uh, They were plugging along. They had a single that was doing pretty well and people kept saying to him like, yo, this song sounds like it should be played in Starbucks. And this is at the time Starbucks was doing like Hear Music. They were heavy on the music in store doing CDs. Yeah,
0: they used to like that, introducing people to music. Spotify sort of killed that for them, huh?
1: For sure, yeah. And so- Well, I mean, nobody wants to go buy a CD with their coffee anymore. So (laughs) everyone was saying the song belongs in Starbucks. And he was like, you know what? Screw it. And he found Howard Schultz's email or figured it out. And he said, you know what? People are probably hitting up the music people all the time, but nobody's sending the CEO a song. And he basically sent like a real brief email. Hey, Howard, I'm a fan of the brand. I'm a fan of yours. I think you would be a fan of this song. I think it would be great. It would fit Starbucks. Let me know what you think. He said within 30 seconds, he had a reply from Howard Schultz. Love the song and CC'd whoever from marketing, music, whatever. Instantly, the song was being played in Starbucks and that kind of he was just telling you that, and that was just a little smart hack instead of hitting up the music people that are in pitched, like no one's hitting up Howard Schultz with a song but if you've seen an interview with that guy he probably appreciates a good rock song every now and then I was just thinking about that as a manager you can do stuff like that as an audio engineer and a mixer you're kind of at the mercy of first you're like an intern at the studio first you start sweeping the studio then you have to wait until the assistant engineer calls out sick and then you could be the assistant engineer then you're the assistant engineer for like 10 years and then you might get a chance to mix a record and the only way to really get somewhere quickly as a mixer is if you're like making the opportunities happening yourself and really doing stuff on the business side to then get those opportunities As I just learned about it, I was like, you know what, I don't want to wait forever to be working with great musicians. I don't want to be sitting around in a studio all day. That's what I've been doing, just waiting for an opportunity. I feel like that's what I've been doing in school. Like I'm good at getting my name out there, at marketing, at talking to people, at putting a team together. And as I was learning about the music business, I felt like, you know what, I really want to discover artists and I want to be an A&R guy and work at a label. So an A&R guy is a person at the label who signs the acts and then they help them make the record. If I'm Justin Bieber's A&R guy, then I might have not been the person that signed him, but I'm the person at the label who is not really the project manager thats separate but like the creative project manager, you're going to get in the studio with this producer, I'm going to give you songs from this songwriter, you're going to try recording this. Let's sh- and I really wanted to be an A&R guy. I went I got an internship while I was still in school at Atlantic Records. I was the assistant to the senior director of A&R for a summer in New York City. It was a great experience. I kind of got plucked out of the intern pen and got made an assistant to the senior director of A&R. And I got to sit in his tiny office and listen to all his phone calls and observe how he talked to artists.
0: What's that guy's job like? Is he just getting pitched all day long?
1: Yeah. So now he actually doesn't work at Atlantic anymore. Now he's a manager and manages like one of the most successful pop producers that's out there. And so he's doing great. But yeah, an A&R guy, he would get calls all day from lawyers, managers, whoever trying to pitch him acts. And then also from managers of songwriters and producers would either come into the office or on the phone and try to pitch him songs and say, who are you looking for songs for? Like you need songs for, you know, I don't remember who was on the roster at the time, but you need songs for Alicia Keys. Check out this one from this writer I manage or this writer I manage trying to pitch songs. That makes sense.
0: So he's brokering the songwriter and the artist.
1: Yeah. So he's representing the artist on the label's behalf on the creative side. So he'll kind of facilitating creative music making with songwriters and producers for the artist on his roster. I sat there, and that was a huge education. I learned how he spoke to artists, his demeanor with artists when the artists were playing the music, how to talk to executives, how to talk to just all the different stakeholders. And that was huge for me. And I kind of came back and I was like, all right, I'm going to be something like that. And... I really was like, all right, and he said, like, come back here. And you know, once you're done with school, you can come start entry level, an assistant in the A&R department, and you're good, you know, I, I got you, no problem. And between the time that I had that internship, and I finished school, I had, you know, spoken to a few other people in the music business and really was digging in to kind of imagining my career and an early mentor, who was my business partner, Brandon, who I started managing Amtrak with in college early. His father's old friend was an old school music business head, had worked for Arista in the 80s with Whitney Houston and had worked at MTV and had, you know, been through the whole system. And when we were in LA, met with him and he basically told Brandon and I, listen, if you find a life-changing artist and you're an A&R guy at a label, you're going to take your 30 or 40 grand a year. You're going to give the label this life-changing artist they are going to make potentially millions of dollars off this life-changing artist and you're going to be on your salary maybe you get a point an R point they call it, and you're incentivized and you get a piece but not until you're like a senior director or like a vice president an entry-level R, you got to prove yourself before you start getting a piece so he basically said when you find the artist that you think you would sign to a big label like that that would be good enough you should just be the manager and the manager gets to commission the gross. It gets to be involved in every part of the business. Everything, the shows, the publishing, the recorded music, the endorsements, all the fun stuff. And you can start making money instantly and you're totally in the driver's seat. And then once you do that, you can do anything. Once you're established as a manager, you could always go work for a label. Yeah. Go find somebody. Go find someone and do it yourself. If you just get a job, you're going to find someone and sign them to someone else. And basically, what's the fun or where's the profit in that?
0: So what you would say to somebody like Amtrak is, look, you do the music side of this. You do what you like to do, and we're going to manage your career.
1: That's exactly it. It's you are amazing at making music, and you're an amazing artist. You worry about making your art. You worry about making music, and we will worry about you having a sustainable career, and making money, and connecting with fans, and all of the business affairs. And it's like, you do the art, we do the commerce, and it works together. And that's kind of how the manager artist relationship works at its best. When we have some artists that are super involved in their career, and will need everything to be approved by them. There's not a social media post or a tweet, or a gig that gets booked without them being intimately involved in the details. And then I have some artists who are like, look, dude, tell me when to start and I'm there. Put the check in my account. All good. And they just want the management to deal with everything. Let me know if there's a social media post I should see. (laughs) You know, something like that.
0: Yeah. So are you running their social media presence, for lack of a better term?
1: So here's the thing. As a manager, you're kind of the wheel. If you're thinking about like a wheel and spokes, you're kind of in the middle as the hub and then you're kind of the coordinator. So as a good manager, it's your job to kind of, you're in the middle with the artists and then you hire the publicist, you hire the agents and the different agencies. So in a perfect world at a high level, I would be like overseeing a social media company or a service or some type of contractor that was handling that for us. But in a lot of cases, especially with developing artists, there's not the budget to support that or there's other priorities. It's like, look, we don't want to spend our money on that. So sometimes we have somebody in our office, an intern or an assistant or even me. I mean, I'll do Instagram posts for some of my clients sometimes. So yeah, we'll take that into our purview. I mean, at least what we do as managers, because we do like to identify things early and work on things from a very early stage is like, Sometimes as the manager, we do everything until there's other team members. So if we sign a band and they don't have a booking agent, the bookings go through us. It's like if we sign a new singer and we're doing a campaign for them and they don't have a publicist yet, we're basically acting as their pseudo publicist. And so as the manager, you're kind of the catch all for everything. I mean, even if they don't have a business manager who does their invoicing and bookkeeping and stuff, we kind of, I mean, we don't like to, but we kind of do a little bit of that for them.
0: Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. So if you have an emerging artist, what's your strategy? I guess it's hard to ask for just like a blanket playbook, but let's just say that you're excited about somebody. I mean, are you trying to get them noticed on Instagram? Are you trying to get them up on the Spotify playlist? How do you go through trying to figure out what's sort of the first channel or is it omni channel and just like a blitzkrieg type thing?
1: It's different for every type of artist and it really depends. If you are trying to break an artist at a really high level, something that's in the pop world, I would definitely say that it's omnichannel. You wanna go and try to get them a big label partner who's gonna be able to market it. You wanna get the, and push it to Spotify and get that playlisting, which is huge. Editorial love from Spotify or Apple music. Can you just explain like,
0: why do you need the label now? Just because of their scale? Basically, like they have the connections and they can get the artist out?
1: Well, it really depends. I mean, I have a lot of artists that I work with that we don't work with labels and they just self-release or we start their own label for them. But the reality is, if you want to be a global superstar, you typically need a major record label that has a global scale. It happens without them, but it's rare. We work with a lot of more niche acts that for us, it's like we start with a client, And our first priority is trying to build the world around them. That's the first thing. It's like, what is their aesthetic? What are their fans called? I mean, not all artists have a name for their fans, but it's like, you know, what does their merch look like? What is their tour going to look like once they start doing shows? What other artists are they going to collaborate with? You're kind of building in their brand and figuring out who they are as an artist. And then in terms of rolling it out, it's all different. Sometimes you want to go top level and just go straight to promoting it on the radio
0: how do you promote it on the radio? Do you call up a studio or, or like a radio station? And you say, I got this thing that I want to, I mean, I know this is like old school and sort of basic, but I don't even understand how to start to get the artist promotion out to someone like me. It seems like, oh, well, you just, you got to get them on like a Spotify playlist or something like that. And I know it's not that easy. So I'm just trying to figure out how do you start to get the momentum going?
1: I think you're spot on on that instinct with the Spotify playlist because I mean, the name of the game and what we're talking about a lot of the time is editorial support from the service providers from Spotify and Apple Music. So that means that if you are the flagship playlist on Spotify every week is New Music Friday, right? I'm not sure. Probably there's a few million followers that have that stuck on their Spotify app so it appears, but then, you know, millions more will reference it and search it every week. And that's kind of like the definitive list of all the biggest music that came out that week, according to the Spotify editors. And if you have your song that shows up in New Music Friday, depending on how high up in the playlist, that could be good for millions of streams instantly, which equals revenue. But more importantly, it's eyeballs from fans, the industry, and the broader music community. So... There's the aspect of the editorial new music stuff where it's like you have something you want to pitch those Spotify editors and say this is going to be the biggest thing like the day this song comes out you want this to be in your editorial playlist and you want to start supporting this from the beginning because this is going to be everywhere or on a smaller scale or a more nuanced scale, there's for Amtrak, for instance, he has a lot of instrumental house music, right? The seven minutes long house jams that are electronic dance music, but they're great for like studying or hanging out or just like background music. And so his music is frequently in all of these playlists that are like, you know, one of them is called Deep House Relax, or there's like Concentration. And these are playlists that are made by Spotify that are genre specific, but some of them are just mood specific and they don't update those as frequently.
0: Yeah, like Peaceful Piano is almost never
1: updated. Exactly. And so there's Amtrak songs that he controls the rights to and that came out on his own label that have been sitting in some of those Deep House Relax playlists for, it could be like months or a year. And people are listening to that when they're studying in the car. And it's unlike when you bought a CD and it's front heavy and you might've got that 10 bucks up front. When you're streaming, you get a few pieces of a penny every time, but it's forever. And so for us, back to your question, With a lot of artists, the way at least we kind of look at it is, look, some things are a slow burn that will get discovered years later or months later. But in most cases, you kind of have a finite window of the release of a song, which is kind of like the single cycle or the album cycle. If you think about the old school, like the general promotion cycle of when you have new music out, you kind of have that limited window to thrust the song or blast off the song into the ecosystem and the cultural consciousness and make that song something and make people aware of that song and make people connect with that song and hear it. And if you can get enough awareness in that first window of when it comes out, chances are that song will then always generate revenue, depending on how big you can get it when it comes out. If you have a big hit song, if you have the biggest hit of this week or of this year, better yet, chances are that song will continue to live on. If, um a 16-year-old right now, and I love Taylor Swift. I had my first crush to August by Taylor Swift, and I'm thinking about that when I'm thinking about this girl that I have a crush on. When I'm 26 and I hear that song, I'm going to be thinking about it. When I'm 36, when I'm 40, you know, you grow up, you keep the music that you grew up with.
0: Do you think that tale is as long anymore? I sort of think there's so much music coming out and so much content, generally speaking, that maybe the tale would be slightly shorter.
1: I agree. I think that there's so much competition now, and there's just so much saturation of music, and it's interesting, I don't know the actual numbers off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that about 80% or 70% of the music that's consumed is catalog and older music, and then about like 30% of it is newer music, but out of that catalog stuff, it's so spread out, it's vast and wide. There's so much different stuff that people connect with in terms of older music or music that's already come out. But in terms of contemporary music and the stuff that the kids are streaming, it's so concentrated. There's like 600 songs that are getting streamed over and over and over again. And so that's why it's kind of counterintuitive if you're looking at the number of plays on Spotify. A song like "Blowin' in the Wind by Bob Dylan, which has been on Spotify since the platform came out and is one of the greatest songs of all time, and you would think people are listening to it over and over again it has maybe a hundred million plays or something or 50 million plays in the lifetime of it existing on Spotify.
0: Yeah. But like little Uzi vert will have like 30 million in a week or whatever. Something crazy.
1: Exactly. Like ransom by little Tekka, who's 19 and came out or 21 and his song came out last year. He has a billion streams on ransom by little Tekka, And it's like little Tekka has a billion streams and Bob Dylan has 50 million. <laughs>
0: So how's that happen? Is a label talking to Spotify's editorial team and saying we got to get this guy going or does that happen virally? Or is it a combination? I mean, like everything in life, it's probably in the gray area.
1: It is a combination, but it's very similar to so back in the day when the labels wanted to get their song on the radio and get it played, you would have the promotions department hitting up the program director's saying this little Tekka song is going to be the biggest thing you need to add it you need to play it on your stations this is going to be huge and then you know you're selling it you're like he's going to be on mtv he's going to be on tour he's got an interview with katie kirk and then now we're doing that with editorial playlisting and with playlists so The label, or we just signed a distribution deal for our in house label. I mean, that's the main thing. We're going to be hitting up our distributor when we have a release saying, if it's a rock release, we want you to talk to the rock editor at Spotify and at Apple Music. Or if it's a hip hop release, we want you to target this person. And they're doing the same thing. And they're reaching out to these editorial playlisters and music editors and saying, look, We have a new project, it's gonna be huge. We've already got this, this and this lined up and you guys should support it. You guys should be a part of blowing this up. And sometimes there's a little rivalry between Apple and Spotify too. So like sometimes if one of them is starting to support an artist early, then another one will say, if we like it more, we wanna give even more support. Apple will say, oh, they're getting a lot of love on Spotify. We're gonna kind of ignore them a little bit. So it's kind of like the typical politics like in any business and with vying for a limited amount of spots and viability. I mean, to their credit, the streaming services, I would say, do their best to try to, I don't know how exactly they get, but they do try to be fair. There are plenty of music industry blogs that will do an analysis of music, of New Music Friday and say, there's three songs from Warner, there's three songs from Sony, there's three songs from Universal, there's three songs from this indie there. And, you know, you could tell that they're trying to spread out the love amongst all of their partners. But yeah, I mean, I would not want to be one of the editors at Spotify getting bombarded on all sides. Well, you might get a lot of dinners. That's true. I had a teacher at Full Sail who was telling us about all the crazy things they would try to do to get radio programmers attention back in the day. And I mean, I'm sure some of the same stuff goes on now.
0: What's the difference between a distributor and a label?
1: A lot of it is very kind of murky in terms of like the customer facing side of it. A lot of it's just behind the scenes, but basically there's two copyrights in any music and that all of the revenue pretty much in terms of the IP flow based on one of these two copyrights there's the sound recording or the master recording and then there's the publishing or the composition let's start with the composition or the publishing that's the sheet music that's the words and music on paper so the original publishing companies were literally like companies that printed sheet music book that's the publishing and then the sound recording is the recording of that composition on tape or digitally and so the label is traditionally the owner of the master recording so I'm a singer or band, and I go to a label, and they say, I like what you do, I'm going to give you an advance, and you're going to give me the copyrights to your album. Or you're going to record five albums for me, and we're going to own the copyright. If you have a lot of leverage, if you're a superstar, maybe you can own the copyright, and we'll license it from you for a set amount of time. But generally, the label owns the master recording, and then the publisher will partner, most artists will If they're a writer too, they can get a publishing deal and have a publisher basically co-own or own their publishing copyrights, or they can control it themselves. The distributor is who the label uses to basically distribute the music to the streaming services and the stores. So really, it is just kind of an old model because it's from back in the day of physical products. So you might say, why do we need a distributor?
0: Yeah, it's like office space. What would you say you do here? Yeah, exactly. I'm a distributor. So you take the physical product? No, not the physical product. I'm a people person.
1: Exactly. And that's really what it is. The distributors are really more of like a relationship middleman. So we have a label in-house at our company. We just signed a distribution deal with The Orchard, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Sony. It's part of Sony Music. That's where if you have an independent label that Sony Music distributes, your distributor is The Orchard. Basically, what that means is I can go out and I can sign music, I can sign artists to our label, and then The Orchard is the distributor. So they then take a distribution fee, a small fee, we create the music, we own the music, then we send it to them. They make sure it gets on Spotify, Apple, all of those places. Now, there's a lot of DIY distributors. Like, DistroKid, which is actually owned by Spotify. There's TuneCore, CD Baby, United Masters, which is owned by Steve Stout, who's a former manager and CEO of Translation Ad Agency. So there's a lot of places where you can just upload your music if you're just an independent artist or label, and you don't need to have a distribution deal or deal with a distributor, but the distributor gives services if they're a good distributor. So for us, in our case, we want to do a distribution deal with Sony. And the reason why we did it is if we have a bubbling artist, they pretty much do the same thing that anyone else does at first is make sure the music goes on Spotify, tries to make sure we get some good looks from the, from Spotify and Apple music and get it out there. But then if it starts to really blow up, we have the option to then add services and then basically upstream the song and have like the worldwide Sony music system pushing it on all levels. And so,
0: So it gives you sort of a scalability that you otherwise wouldn't have without that.
1: Exactly. So if I have a song that's starting to go crazy and stream in Germany, then I can have Sony's Berlin office setting up local press radio interviews, talking to the local Spotify office and the regional offices and, you know, making them aware of it. And so now instead of just one office in Miami for our label, we have 40 offices worldwide that, you know, maybe they're working our whole catalog, but we can turn on the switch if a song's picking up in whatever region we want. In a perfect, everything's working together in unison. That's like a great label distributor relationship. But again, a lot of people are doing it without a distributor and a lot of people are doing it without a label. It just depends kind of the individual situation for the artist.
0: So if I'm like a reasonably big artist on YouTube or something like that, people have found me does it make sense that I would just try to upload through DistroKid, do it all through Spotify? Or if I'm using DistroKid, would Apple de-emphasize me a little bit? Is there competition between Apple and Spotify within DistroKid, for instance, or not really?
1: So DistroKid operates as an independent company, but they are quietly owned by Spotify, at least. Yeah, you were saying you can play your music in all of your... Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Spotify has actually been great at you know, expand, they also own another company soundtrack or brand, which is like music for retail stores and stuff, which is really cool. The distro kid thing. It's not like Spotify is going to give you preference because you're releasing from a DIY distributor that they own. But a lot of times you might not be on the radar if you don't have a distributor pitching you, but if they start seeing the analytics and they see that something came out independently and is doing great, then everyone's going to want to jump on it because they want to support it. Dude,
0: they reached out to me on this podcast, somebody from Anchor. She reached out to me in a day. It's crazy how they have that analytics.
1: The same thing with the major labels. So, they have some really advanced A&R tools where they can check and if they see something is picking up at an exponential rate, they're on top of it and signing it. And that's why there's a lot of these like rappers that you've never heard of that are getting signed to these huge deals with major flagship record labels of major music companies like Columbia or Republic because they're in our research departments are seeing the numbers and they're like this the velocity of these streams are insane and it's like these kids are going listening over and over again and so they're like even if it's just based on this one song they scoop it up and you know it's kind of a numbers game they sign 10 20 things a year if they have a couple hits yeah try
0: to hit a couple so as a manager of an artist, let's say that your artist is trending and blowing up. I mean, why would you say to go to a label when it appears as though you could probably do it yourself with like the distribution that Spotify gives you or Apple for that matter, right? Like what's the incentive to still use labels? I guess it goes back to scale and whatnot and what they can do for you outside of sort of streaming distribution, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, here, let me give you a perfect example. So. We just signed a 21-year-old Jamaican artist. His name's Projects. He's 21. He is an amazingly talented musician. But he, basically, to really blow him up and to get him where he needs to be, I mean, he's making contemporary pop urban dance hall, like it's right in the pocket of, he's competing with some of the biggest musicians in the world or in the same genre, you know, or the same thing, like we wanna get on the radio, we wanna get in New Music Friday. So in order to compete for attention with the Ariana Grande's or Justin Bieber's or even like Sean Paul or is in his genre or someone like that, you need to have scale and you need to have marketing and you need to have the records too. So the thing is, when we signed him as managers, we work on commissions, so there, we don't have a way of really of funding his career without a label or without an outside investor. So he did a deal with Warner Records, which is the flagship label of Warner Music Group. And that deal, it's Warner now will own his next few albums. But in return for that, he got some money up front in advance, a few hundred thousand dollars per album and going up in cash advances.
0: And what he's got metrics, he's got a hit, and then they bonus him
1: out on the back end or something like that? Well, yeah, and then plus a royalty rate. So then it's after he's recouped, then he gets paid a royalty on everything. But in addition to the cash advances, they also give a recording budget. The recording budget's also recoupable. But basically, we have a public company, Warner Music Group, that's going to now give us definitely hundreds of thousands if they continue to option millions of dollars in cash advances and also... Recording support. So that means, look, like we want for projects to break through, one of the biggest things would be collaborations or affiliations. So maybe we want to get ASAP Rocky to do a verse. And that would maybe because if we want to get on the radio, a radio programmer or a Spotify editor might not put on a project song, but they might put on projects featuring asap rocky or i'm just you know throwing out a name we don't have a song with him and you know that's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars for that asap rocky verse either payable to him or to his label depending on his deal and so then now we have a way to do that and they want to do that too because they don't just want to have little songs they want to have big songs you know they're a big company and so or maybe we want to get a superstar producer not even a superstar but just a really well-known producer to get in the studio with him that costs money and so really We could, if we wanted to, we could have said, like, look, projects, John, this is name John, like, you're a great guy. Like, we love you. We know that you're going to blow up. Let's just hustle this thing. Let's get in the van and go do shows and club shows. And let's try to get on Spotify's radar ourselves. And let's do publicity stunts and creative stuff to get things moving. Be like, or, you know, we can do all that with, you know, a million dollars of funding, too. And there's a little bit of a trait for some artists. It's like, owning their master recordings is like, I heard Jay-Z say that owning your masters is important. I'm going to own my master recordings, like no problem. I don't care. You can give me all the money in the world. I'm going to own my work. But for a 21 year old artist who is about to get a huge shot and wants to be a global superstar, says, you know what, if this company owns my album, like I'm still going to get paid off of it for life. And I haven't sold my publishing yet. When I have a big hit, I could still go get a big publishing deal for another big advance. Like I'm good with them owning this IP, and once I'm out of the deal, I'll have more leverage and I'll be able to license my next records and own those. You're not going to get to the place where you can have enough leverage to get yourself a good deal, unless you kind of get in the game a little bit and show that you're down to play ball. It happens, but it's very rare that you just completely blow up independently. It's like Chance, right? Exactly, like Chance the Rapper. But
0: the rumor that I hear is Chance had like a big time backer. Not to take anything away from them, I just had a conversation with somebody and they said, yeah, it wasn't as organic as it may appear.
1: You could still be independent, meaning that you own your own master recordings you're not signed to like a global music company that's supporting you. But if you're going to be a global household name, somebody has to fund it. It's like a tech startup. A music career cannot be making money for years before you have your hit. or And it's like you're acquiring users or fans. And a lot of times that's kind of how it starts. We're not worried about revenue. We're finding fans. We're doing the look. The same thing. If we have an opportunity for projects to come out on stage with little yachty at Coachella, but there's no fee because we're just a guest set. It's like, you better believe it that we're going to put him on a plane, get him to Coachella so he could be there in front of everyone. And look, he's going to lose money on it. You're losing money every day when you're starting a brand or starting a company.
0: Yeah, it's a heck of a marketing expense to get that kind of exposure.
1: Exactly. And it's a great problem to have if we need money to get him on a flight to perform at Coachella for you know, or whatever it may be. And then I have other clients who are more in like the indie niche space where it's like, they don't care about that. They'll get booked for Coachella when they get booked and when they get paid and it's not, they're waiting till they get their big fee. But then for some artists, it's like, look, we need to not fake it till we make it, but we need to show everyone we're in the ecosystem, we're happening, we're out there. And so a lot of times you need to kind of start that before the revenue is being generated to get to that place.
0: Is that when you told me that sometimes you buy like Facebook ads and clicks to get the algorithm sort of going? Like, is that... Maybe more of an indie artist, or is that for all the artists? Because you said that you'll use internet properties to get some of the buzz going, right? To sort of get the algorithms to start recommending the songs.
1: Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that digital marketing across every single platform is a huge tool of every single label, but especially, you know, as a manager on behalf of our artists or for artists signed to our label, like if we have a song that's coming out, like an indie track coming out on a Friday. The second that song comes out on Friday, we're going to start sending ads. From We're going to run Instagram, Facebook, Twitter ads targeted at people who we think would like the music, fans of other acts, or maybe even if the act is established enough, their own fans we can target. And then what we try to do is drive traffic to Spotify or to Apple right when that song comes out. So that way, the woman who called you from Anchor FM the day after you know your spotify yeah i mean they're not calling us directly they're maybe calling our distributor or they're just looking at their dashboard and they're saying there's people from 23 countries streaming this unknown band from miami like maybe we should put that in our miami playlist or maybe we should put this in our international flavor or fresh finds, or you know and to try to everything's so data-based that you know we try to make the data work in our favor and not only drive fans so i think what i was explaining to you is like when we spoke last is It's counterintuitive because you get like a a fraction of a penny for a stream, not even, you know, you barely get a cent or a fraction of a cent each time you get a stream. But we might spend 50 cents or a dollar to try to send a customer or a fan to go check out that band. And it's like, obviously, there's no ROI on the revenue side, but it's marketing. It's getting eyeballs on the band. And at the same time, it's putting traffic into Spotify or Apple showing the, The platform that people are valuing this music, people are listening to it, people are checking it out from different places, and they're getting linked from different sources. They could tell where the traffic's coming from. One came from Twitter, one came from Instagram, one came from an email. So, to try to get as much, as many different sources feeding Spotify that traffic, I mean... One way to guarantee that you get some Spotify editorial love, if they see that you have a song that's blowing up on TikTok and you are driving traffic to Spotify off of TikTok, if they see that you're taking traffic from another platform and driving it to them, oh, there's nothing they love more than that because they like taking eyeballs off another platform. I mean, I'm not talking Spotify specifically. I I mean, because I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just generally, I
0: think it's interesting that you mentioned TikTok. There is. Somebody I talked to, he goes by the handle fool all the time on Twitter. He has been saying that he thinks that TikTok is the new sort of like music discovery platform.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And it has been for quite some time, even in its former form as Musical.ly. It was on the major labels radar. They were already doing so before it was even called TikTok. The three major music companies were aggressively running campaigns on the service.
0: Why do you think it's so much better than something like Instagram or whatever? Why is it sort of where everything is going?
1: Have you used it before by any chance?
0: I have looked at it a couple times. I do not use it. I hear it's extremely addictive and I need less of that in my life. So I have not even started.
1: And so not to just sound completely like the cliche that everyone's saying, but I really do think it's just their algorithm is insane. I mean, you could start scrolling on there and like an hour later goes by, I don't know what they're doing, but you can look through someone's Spotify. It's like I go through my wife's TikTok account and it's like all tie dyeing and tropical vacations and cooking and stuff. And then I go through mine and this is not stuff that is followed. This is the for your page feature. So you can follow things and have a feed of, but then there's just like a constant discovery for your page. And you go through mine and it's like everything that I like. It's cool music gear. Like they really learn to hone in. I think that, and music is just an important part of it. It started out with people doing, singing along or doing lip sync stuff, but now it's just kind of evolved into music being a part of the fabric of everything that happens on TikTok. And they've done a pretty good job at integrating the music and letting you know what you're listening to. If it's a real song, it can link back to that artist's official TikTok page. How do you do all the royalties on that thing? Who monitors that? So that goes through your distributor as well, or your publisher or PROs. Basically, there's two, well, there's many different royalties. It's very convoluted and confusing, but generally everything either goes through there's a master royalty that's going to the record label and there's a publishing royalty that's going to the publisher. Pretty much everywhere that a song is played on any platform, there's royalties flowing to both entities as well as the artist.
0: That's crazy. That's so much administrative work to go through. You almost need a distributor or or somebody that Like as a manager, that would be overwhelming to manage, I think, without a partnership.
1: If I own my own label, which I do, but if I own my own label that didn't have a distributor, it's very possible to go out and get direct accounts with like Apple, Spotify, Rhapsody, Deezer, like all of these different platforms. But the distributors, they have all the tech, they have it all ready to go. I can upload it in one place and they shoot it out to everywhere. And as new platforms and new things come online, they keep it updated there. And, you know, there's a lot of the not obvious ones. Napster was obviously everyone knows the history of Napster, but Napster was around as like a real streaming service. I think it might still be in some territories. But now, like the Napster technology and the Napster music library, like that's white labeled for a bunch of other technology companies. So a lot of places where music appears streaming is like has Napster underpinnings. And so, like, we still distribute to like Napster as a, co- yeah. And you wouldn't know that, but oh, well, if I want my, song to be in whatever library or accessible to whatever customer in whatever territory, then it needs to be everywhere. You know, so it's just interesting that the distributors deal with all of that.
0: Napster was crazy. We took a quick bathroom break. So here we're back and we started talking about the old
1: podcast stats.
0: The interesting thing. So like I hosted on Libsyn.
1: Is that an independent platform or that's part of it?
0: It's Liberated Syndication, so it's a third-party hosting platform. The guy that helps me out, shout out to Matthew Passy, he recommended that I sign up for it. It's been really good. The thing that's a benefit on Libsyn is I don't have to pay for downloads. I pay for what I upload.
1: Mm, Interesting. Okay.
0: I'd rather not have a show blow up and have to pay a bunch of money because of it. I'm not monetizing it right now, so I'd rather not have the risk of having something go really well and then I'm like, oh shit, you
1: know? (laughs) So wait, just so I have this right, if you put on a podcast through one of these services and then I'm downloading it on Apple Podcasts, they're charging you? Or if it's being downloaded off their platform, you mean?
0: The way that it works is the hosting service will charge you at times. I think one of the things that Spotify is working on is they like to market that they have 75% of all new podcasts. So they have Anchor, and that doesn't charge you to host. What they said to me is they said, okay, well, we'll help you place ads. And I think that they take like 40% of the ad revenue or something like that in exchange for not charging you for anything. So what I have with Libsyn is I can control what I pay when I upload it. There's like three other platforms or whatever, and some of them will charge you. They don't charge you to upload the episode, but they do charge you to download it. If you were downloading it on Apple, I would have more variable costs associated with my episodes. So right now I have a fixed cost structure, which is basically just personal marketing expense, right? For lack of a better term. The guys at, um, what is it, Masters Invest or something? I'm pretty sure it's a crowdsourced art, Masterworks. They tried to, uh, or are interested in sponsoring the show. I don't know that I want to go that route right now but I appreciated them reaching out. I said, you know, let's talk and sort of see where it goes. But I guess I'm just trying to keep everything sort of like manageable from my end. And then I'll worry about sort of where it goes in the future. That's part of the reason I didn't go with Anchor is as of today, I'm not really interested in selling the advertising. And I sort of like having the control.
1: Yeah, I saw Anchor's doing something pretty cool for music podcasts. Well, I guess now it's part of Spotify where they have a platform where I could basically record a podcast in pieces, I guess, and using their in-house editor, and then play songs throughout the podcast. But those songs will are licensed Spotify real songs from the catalogs. In the past, if I was going to record a podcast where I was like DJ style hosting a bunch of music, or even a DJ mix, or presenting different songs, it would kind of be unlicensed, illegally, just like putting dropping these songs into my podcast file. But now they're actually linked to the song on Spotify. So I could do a top 10 of my favorite Billy Joel songs podcast. And each time that song gets played, it shows up on Spotify as the actual track with the art. And it also pays the rights holders as well. And then it will go back and then I'll say, you just heard, you know, uptown girl, that was my number 10. Now number nine is this, and then it will go into the next one. And it will like create the podcast for you that way, which is actually something that Apple music has had for their official shows. If you listen to any of their Elton John has a like Rocket Hour and he'll host or have guest people or Pharrell has a show too and they'll host on air and then it will go into a song. But if you're looking at your phone, it'll go from the name of the episode to the name of the song and the artwork and then go back. But that's only for the in an official capacity. If you have like a Beats One show, which is their Apple Music live radio service and then comes back on demand. But now on Anchor through Spotify I guess anyone could do a show like that. So that kind of piqued my interest. I thought that was pretty cool because you can actually pay the rights holders for those songs being used in the podcast.
0: Yeah, dude. I want my boys Francisco and Alex. I want them to come on and I wanted the Kanye song. Ain't nobody fucking with my click. But I was like, one, I probably can't afford that. And two, how the heck would I pay them?
1: So exactly. I believe on this new anchor service, you could even just use that as like an intro song. And then after the song plays, it's like, welcome back to the business, Brew. Like That's
0: what I want. I want that to be their intro
1: song. You should look into that. It might be worth dabbling in anchor for just one episode. I don't know.
0: I thought I was going to have to write Kanye and be like, dude, help me out. But I think he's got some other things going on right now. Do you care as the manager where things are played. Do these platforms pay you all the same amount? Is there a preference?
1: Yes and no. In terms of like Spotify versus Apple, it's really all the same. I mean, there's some intrinsic value with each platform. For example, one of my clients, Stephen A. Clark, who's an R&B singer. Yeah, you came to his show. You came when he opened for Chromio in Chicago. I did. He opened for Chromio. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was touring an album that came out on a big indie label, Secret Canadian, but now he's actually out of his record deal. He's been self-releasing some stuff on our in-house label that we have at our management company. And from that last album that you went to the tour for, he had a song that in Apple Music was supporting it a lot. And they were it was called Feel This Way. It was really fun summary jam. Yeah, it has like kind of a seventies funk vibe. It's a great one. And they were supporting that song a lot, putting it in their playlists and stuff. And all of a sudden, I mean In the iTunes or Apple Music upload agreement and the Spotify upload agreement in there, it basically says, like, we could use this song and this artwork for whatever we want, for advertising, for whatever. But, like, you don't really think that they're actually going to use it. And I'm like a big Apple nerd. So I'm watching the keynote of Tim and, you know, Phil introducing the new products. No way, dude. Did they use it? Well, they didn't use a song because they would have had to license it. But on the iPhone in Apple Music ad, it was an i iP- or it was maybe the new iPod Touch or something like that. I don't know. It was an iPhone of some type, and it was like all the music you want. And his album art was right there on the screen. Ah, oh, that's sweet, man. Good for him. Yeah. So that was cool. I mean, it wasn't anything like revolutionary for his career, but it was like, wow, his song was doing well on Apple Music. The marketing team definitely went to the Apple Music people and said, "Hey, like." what's a cool artist like that has some cool artwork?
0: Yeah, that is some good artwork.
1: Yeah. And they're probably like, because it was visual for the presentation and it was a really, I mean, the album was called Where Neon Goes to Die. It was a very visually appealing, bright with his face on it. And it just looked like a product shot of a cool album. And they used it. Spotify, due to their like editorial strength with New Music Friday and all of their playlists, they definitely have There's a little bit of cachet with doing well on Spotify. Everyone loves Apple, and Apple actually has a better relationship, I would say, in some ways with the songwriters, and with the songwriting publishing world, and with the artists in some case. But Spotify has those eyes. Everyone looks at New Music Friday, like everyone's fighting for those spots. Everyone wants to be. The Spotify global chart, if you're on the United States Spotify global chart, or the worldwide global chart of the top 50 songs that are moving. Every label, you're on their radar. Every publisher, you're on their radar. Agents are looking at it. So Apple doesn't really have charts as much like that. They still kind of have slower moving, quote unquote, iTunes charts or whatever the Apple music charts. But like, because Spotify has such robust analytics that are widely available and they have the editorial and even just like the charts, you can go on and see what the top 50 songs in France, top 50 songs in Germany, and it's live updating.
0: I've noticed the podcast data certainly appears better from Spotify than Apple for me.
1: Apple Music might have like a top 50 songs in Germany viral playlist. I don't know how much it's updated, but it's not really on my radar. I don't know if like it's updated as regularly. Spotify's are like algorithm updated regularly. That carries a lot of weight. And I think, you know, just generally in terms of from like a business perspective, Spotify really digs in on the technology and the user experience. I mean, they're a music company, they're an audio company, they have a lot of great products. But I think that because their whole future is based on maximizing the money that they make from this music, I think they're just kind of naturally at odds with the rights holders community, uh, because it's always the negotiation and exactly of their money versus the rights holders money. And so I think everything that's kind of this bubbling, weird climate, it's weighty, it's serious, it's personal. And it's their art, it's their business, it's everything. And so it gets tricky. But with Apple, for example, they kind of like when all of the service providers like Spotify, Google, uh, Pandora, were all in court arguing against the songwriter rate hike, Apple said, we don't care, we love songwriters. Because again, Apple is making money from everything else. Music is just an added service. It's a feature. It's great. So if they have to pay a little bit more to songwriters, cool, you know, just chalk it up to a marketing expense, they're making autonomous cars or whatever, like they don't care. But for Spotify, if they have to pay a couple more cents to the songwriters, this is like, tectonic, huge issue for them. So there's like that natural friction, I think that kind of so but it's interesting. But then at the same time, from just like a basic, like in my world, I'm like, I love Spotify, I love Apple, I want everyone to play us, you know, but in terms of the broader music industry, that's kind of how things are feeling. And that
0: particular battle was over the publishing rights, right?
1: Exactly. Yes. There's been so much action on the publishing side right now, and it's basically just because publishing royalties are legislated, which is very strange. So the on the master side, the three major record labels, Warner, Sony, and Universal, Universal being owned by Vivendi, not only do they have all of their wholly owned and subsidiary and joint venture labels, but then they also have full systems of distribution companies that then Distribute indie labels like how Sony just picked up our independent label to distribute and so they have so much market share and they get to sit across the table from Daniel Elk or whoever and say this is how much we want you to pay us to license this content and these are the terms and the publishers who own the content they are based on it's legislated it's like copyright board resolutions Basically the standard since pretty much like the iTunes download era based on like the 99 cent per song construct is basically for every like 99 cents or every dollar of a song, about nine cents in law goes to the songwriters and publishers. That's the mechanical license that goes to anywhere where you're playing a sound recording. You pay the label to play their sound recording. You're also using a composition. You're also using publishing that you have the license when you're playing that that's part of the sound recording and you pay publisher their mechanical royalty of nine cents then there's always like in record deals they try to like cut down the mechanical rate that they're paying to the artists whatever but and that used to be a whole big song and dance with the if I'm an artist that writes my own stuff the label would try to cut down my mechanical royalty rate that they paid on my records
0: oh so then the label renegotiates with you and they say like okay out of that nine cents we'll take four you get five something like that
1: yeah, or like, we're only going to pay you 75 cents of it because you are we're paying you an artist royalty and you're making money on the artist side, you're making money touring, why do we have to pay you to license the song that we paid you for? And they would cut that down. But the artist would always try to get that up because the mechanical is a license that's paid on the first dollar. So while they have to wait to get their master royalties until they're fully recouped, they start paying out those publishing royalties from first stream or first sale because it's like an expense on top. But now... With streaming and Spotify and Apple, mechanical royalties are now withheld and paid directly at the source. So Spotify withholds those mechanical royalties and pays them directly to the publishers. And so it's actually great for me. Like when I have a record label, like 10 years ago, in my royalty calculation would have to be paying out all of these royalties to the publishers as well as the artists. And sometimes songs can have like 10 writers and each of them has a publisher and then I'm paying them fractions of pennies, adding it up. But now Spotify just does that for me and pays it directly to the publishers through agencies. Yeah. So through like third party agencies. So that's great. But what's happening is the rate is still legislated. And so those are all being paid at that like nine cent construct rate. Now, it doesn't really make sense if you're a publisher or a songwriter because that might've made sense when it was like the Bob Dylan era when he was writing his own songs. So all the money was going to him. But now 19 out of 20 songs on the top 20 or 99 out of 100 songs have more than one writer and usually have professional songwriters. It's like a Justin Bieber song might have a couple of producers and a couple of writers on it. All of them then share that little nine-cent royalty. Now, in other aspects of the business, like licensing for film and television and stuff like that, it's much more equal. The norm is 50-50. So if there's a sync for a Ford commercial that's worth a million dollars, synchronization license to use a song in a commercial. Usually the way that ends up getting split up is half and half. 50% to the publishers and writers, and 50% of that to the master owner, the label, and then they pay the artist the royalty off of that. And that makes a lot more sense if you're a publisher, or a songwriter, or just kind of somebody with common sense. But the reason why, I mean in my opinion, that it hasn't changed, is because the three major publishing companies that have the most market share in publishing Are happen to be owned by the three major music companies that make more in recorded music. So the three biggest publishers of market share are Warner Chapel Publishing, Sony ATV Publishing, and Universal Music Group Publishing. Those are all monster companies that make billions of dollars, but not as many billions as they make in the recorded music side. So they could easily change the rates, but then they're just moving the money from their recorded side to one pocket to the next. So to them, the status quo is good. And that kind of leads into now how... There's this whole movement with Wall Street getting into buying publishing catalogs because Merck Mercurius, who's a famous manager, he started on the London Stock Exchange Hypnosis Song Fund a couple years ago. They raised a billion dollars. His goal was to prove that music was an investable asset class, like the publishing of it, because it is a reliable asset. If you have a hit song, every time it's played, every time it's performed, it rings that register a few pennies. Publishing is like the waterfall of pennies. It just keeps coming in. He basically realized that eventually there's going to be a paradigm change, and eventually the songwriters and the publishers are going to be able to get more money and flip that paradigm and get a little bit more out of the mechanical license. And maybe it's legislated at a higher rate, like this most recent court case that Spotify was against that Apple said they were okay with, which was a 44% increase that would take it to about 13 or 14 cents out of the dollar the major publishers never care to do that now hypnosis and there's another company that's been in the game even longer primary wave they're more of a traditional company but they also are doing these big song acquisition portfolios they're buying up all these publishing catalogs and they don't own any recorded music they don't have a label that they're making more money off of so it's basically a play for as soon as they get enough market share once they own the publishing to all the biggest hit songs in the world and all the classic hit songs then they're going to go and say we need these rates. they're going to have a lot more leverage to negotiate this kind of stuff and they're going to be able to through legislation and business negotiation up the rates of the publishing so that's why people are saying oh my gosh they're paying these crazy multiples on publishing like 20x 13x whatever it is but that's a multiple based on the current rates Once those rates flip, there's a lot more upside. That's kind of like why, I mean, in my opinion, why it seems like they're going on this publishing buying spree. And then, you know, now Universal in turn is coming back and saying, oh, well, you guys are buying all these classic catalogs. We're going to pay Bob Dylan 300 mil for his catalog, for his publishing. And these are all just acquisitions of the publishing of the copyrights.
0: Do you think it's going to be a fixed pie? And do the artists have to give up something on the master side? Or is the pie going to grow and the whole music industry makes more money?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. So, in terms of statically right now, if they were to flip the rate, then I don't know. That kind of is going to come down to negotiation if that extra money is going to come out of Spotify's pocket or that's going to come out of the. I don't really know that much about the mechanics. I basically know that the way Spotify works is that they don't pay you a set rate per song stream. They basically pay you like a stream share. They like say, okay, 60% of our top line or whatever, however they do it, is going towards artist royalties this quarter. And Out of that, these are the songs that all got played and they divided up pro rata. It always kind of fluctuates. With the master recording, it's right now, if it would flip, yes, I think some money that would normally be flowing to the master side, like the labels and the artists would now be flowing to the publishers and the songwriters. But the idea is that as everything grows, as more things come online, like a few years ago, we weren't even talking about TikTok royalties or Twitch royalties or Oculus, virt- whatever it is. So as more things come online, there's just going to be more places that need to get publishing and licenses for all of the services for all of the masters that they're going to be playing.
0: Are you guys going to do a Roblox concert anytime soon?
1: <laughs> I mean, my friend, my college roommate is the creative director does all like the merch and artistic stuff for travis scott the rapper who did like the big Fortnite concert and so i had a little bit of insight into some of the creative i mean i wasn't anywhere near it but Corey was you know telling me a little bit about how all that went down and i mean that is it's just so awesome i mean all of the virtual stuff i mean we haven't kind of got there yet with any of our clients
0: i could see amtrak doing something like that
1: A hundred percent. I mean, you know, we do like short term and long term goals with our clients and a lot of them on the long term goals is like do something in the virtual world that's like cool.
0: Dude, Stephen A. Clark, that where neon goes to die, if you could do something in the virtual world with neon and stuff, that would be super cool. Or if I could listen to that somehow on Oculus and like tour Miami at night or something, that'd be pretty freaking cool.
1: I mean, if any of Bill's listeners out there have an investment in some kind of cool VR AR platform that wants to do some cool music experimentation, hit me up. It's wild, the experiences that you can get now. I mean, not to completely go off topic, but I've heard you talk about the Oculus a few times.
0: We can go off topic. This is all just a conversation at this point.
1: So one of my clients walks in the office with the Oculus. I had never worn it before. I put it on. I don't know if it's a game that you buy or if it's just a demo mode, but basically the game that I was playing is you basically, you walk into an elevator, you go up the elevator, the elevator opens and it's like a plank and you're like basically on the top of a skyscraper in New York City or somewhere. And you walk out on the plank and you jump off and you like experience jumping down and then you land and that's like the whole thing, you know, it's just like a quick demo to show you. He puts headphones on me. So I'm like completely immersed in the experience. I go on I hit it, and I'm like, oh, this looks pretty cool, whatever. The elevator doors open. I feel my feet on the ground. I'm in my office. My heart starts beating. I'm walking out and I, in my brain, I'm saying, I know I'm just standing in my office, but my body is having the full reaction of as if I was standing out on the ledge, a hundred stories high. My heart is beating. I'm sweating. I'm feeling like I want to rip this thing off my head and just get back into the real world. You know, it is incredible, dude. It's it's so crazy.
0: It's wild. I showed my father-in-law. There's something where you can go down and dive with manta rays. I think it might be YouTube VR. And it's just crazy. I don't even know how to describe it other than I view it as a complete inevitable that we're all going to be doing this in some way, shape, or form in the not-too-distant future. And I think for kids, I just don't understand why you don't go into class and rather than read a marine biology book or as a supplement, I mean, not like everything has to turn into watching TV all the time, but okay, now we studied this fish, let's go take a dive with this fish. And then all of a sudden you have a class that pops on these I mean, they're $300 a piece. It's like nothing for that tech.
1: Yeah, Elon or Bill Gates or someone could just buy them for the whole country's uh, classrooms if they wanted to, you know, or or they could do Facebook and just donate them. I mean, those things are amazing.
0: Which I think what's going on is Zuckerberg understands that if you can get them in enough people's hands, then the developer ecosystem sort of thrives and then you get this virtuous cycle. I almost think it needed... Someone like Zuckerberg that had enough money and the passion that would just say, like, we're selling the hardware at break even or a loss because we're going to get this out there. And then once people figure out how cool this is, then it's going to be on because I'm convinced it's the next screen.
1: I mean, you can't help. But like, just imagining like this vast ecosystem, like the iOS app store, but for like virtual reality, and it just like normal, it's like, Oh, yeah, if I have biology class, download the class app for the first lessons or whatever it is. And I don't know if it's going to be day to day replacing your typical phone and computer screens. But in terms of any type of immersive experience, it's there.
0: That's exactly what I think is going to happen. And then I think what's probably going to end up happening is Apple is going to release some copycat product that's just going to blow people's minds because like they're so good at screen resolution. And I just have a feeling that whatever they come out with is just going to like people are going to just go nuts.
1: I mean, that seems like a likely scenario, I would say for sure.
0: Plus, they got beats. I was surprised. I found the Oculus. The sound is quite a bit better than I thought it would be.
1: Yeah. And and also, I mean, content, Apple TV and whatever, they're already investing so heavily in content. At some point when all of this converges with this new platform of however we're experiencing virtual stuff, and then now the content that we're, they can take Apple TV and that content platform and you're paying four bucks a month or whatever it is, 10 bucks a month for 2d movies right now but then in a few years we're going to be paying for it for the next season of whatever on apple tv might be completely immersive or you know when you're watching cosmos with neil degrasse tyson instead of on your 2d screen it's like there will be a version where you can watch it on via oculus or whatever platform that could be
0: dude that would be wild because i have not been that impressed with apple tv but if somehow you got a exclusive offering within their like if they started doing vr movies and stuff that you got access to through their vr headset that would probably make me flip and say okay it's worth it
1: i mean it would only make sense it's gonna be crazy I mean, they have an in-house content studio. All they're going to be doing is like, how are we going to provide content for our new platforms? And that's going to be what drives demand. I mean, imagine if Apple comes out with their, you know, Oculus Plus or, you know, whatever they call it, their Oculus competitor. And not only is it badass hardware that has cool apps, But also, it's like the new Denzel Washington movie is premiering exclusively on there where you can look 360 degrees and look at the car chase and explore the house. You know, it's endless.
0: Yeah, that would be sick. You know how IMAX is like the most immersive screen before? It's almost like bigger than an IMAX because it completely it's your entire eyesight.
1: Yeah, I mean, like back to that example of when I was in the skyscraper jumping off the plank, you hear the birds chirping and I look up and it looks like there's birds out like 50 feet in front of me. It's crazy. The field of depth is amazing. I know it's
0: wild. The only thing that messed me up was when I was doing that manta ray thing. I looked all the way to the left and I saw like a black spot and I said, all right, they got to fix this. It needs to feel like I'm fully in an ocean. The frame cannot end. But once we're there, it's on. At first, I was like, okay, well, it'll probably take share from travel a little bit. But now I almost think that it's like, oh, well, where do I think I want to go travel? And then Google is the search engine that gives you places in Nice or whatever. I don't know. And you like check that out. It's going to be wild. 100%
1: 100% it's like I've always dreamed about going to New Zealand but I'm not really sure if I want to commit to like spending the money let me throw on the headset and check it out a little bit see what the vibe's like in the town I want to visit oh now I'm definitely going that was sick or whatever the sentiment is
0: I play the boxing game a lot I've thrown my elbow out a little bit too often
1: do Viata and the kids do boxing the air they're like what's going on with daddy like
0: One day, one of the kids was in the living room, and I heard something, and I took the headset off, and I saw him looking at me, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I must have looked like an idiot. And then he's like, can I put it on? I said, when you're older.
1: You're really a dad, huh, with the one you're older.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I say all types of stuff that my father used to say to me that I swore that I would never say. One of them today was, I don't know what it was, but man, I was like, oh, boy, I really have become who I said I wouldn't become. Going back to the podcast stats, I'm looking, so I have 30,000 downloads are on Apple Core Media or Apple Podcasts, and 10,600 are on Spotify. I think it's wild how much more the Apple distribution is for my particular program.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting, like you say that, because I... Love Spotify. I mean, I subscribe to every single music service, obviously, like just because I'm in the business. I have Amazon Music, Pandora, you name it, I've got it. But I am addicted to Spotify in terms of listening. I've been listening to Spotify for however many years, 10 years, whatever they know me, I can put on my custom algorithm playlists, they know what I like to listen to. I'm used to the interface combined with the activity of I can browse what's happening in the music business on my fingertips, in the car, I can catch up on what's going on in different countries, whatever. So I'm addicted to Spotify. I've tried so hard to listen to podcasts on Spotify. For some reason in my brain, I'm just so used to using podcasts in Apple. And now even when I put in my AirPods too, on the iOS update, I just get a bunch of little like, podcast artwork. It's like Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. It's like another music business worldwide, which is a great podcast from a blog. And every time and it's or it's just right there on my thing. And so I'm like, oh, I don't even need to open Spotify. I'm just listening to podcasts there.
0: I have found that when I watch Rogan now on Spotify, and I listen to him less than I did before when he was everywhere.
1: Is there a video component to that? Or you mean just when you listen?
0: Yeah, man. And it's glitchy. I don't even know. I was saying to my buddy, I don't even know if it's Spotify's fault. It could be something that's going on elsewhere, but my Bluetooth will drop when I'm listening and then I'll have to play it on the phone and then reconnect to the Bluetooth and it'll just stop playing. And the weird thing is I do sort of know in my head that the tech problem may not be at Spotify's level. But when I'm listening to Spotify and it happens, my mental association is with Spotify. So it almost doesn't even matter what the real issue is because my association is with Spotify. And then I get like pissed off.
1: No, that makes sense. I mean, it's all about the perception It's it could be a device issue or, you know,
0: and- yeah, when I was running the flooring business, it went horribly wrong, right? But one of the guys that was talking to me, I said something about what happened with a customer, and he said, you know, perception's reality, and that always stuck with me. It's like, it really doesn't matter what your version of the truth is. If somebody else's version of the truth is different, that's not their truth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you can apply that to everything that I do in like, the entertainment business, but also just like, I mean with the current political climate and the news and everything. I mean, yeah, that's very true.
0: Is there a group of artists that you don't enjoy working with on
1: average? You mean genre-wise or just personality-wise?
0: Yeah. Like, are there some guys that just won't show up?
1: It really depends. It's like working in every genre. We work with a lot of different types of artists and a lot of different genres at different age groups and backgrounds. But it really depends. I mean, the most important thing is that there's just some artists who are fully engaged in the business side of their career and are like on it and then they can, and they can still be great artists. And then there are some who really like embody almost not the stereotype, but like how you would imagine like the ethos and the vibe of like a true artist who is kind of detached from the business operations and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And like the scheduling and logistical parts. I would
0: think that there would be some tension there where you're like, how about show up on time?
1: With us, especially as managers, it's like we really only work with artists that we get along with personally and we can handle working with because your lawyer, your publicist, even your label, sometimes it's not that intimate of a relationship. But your manager, I mean, we are talking to them all day. We are doing everything from negotiating the most important deals of their life to planning their financial situation and their career and planning their schedule, sometimes years ahead of time. And then also the bus breaks down on the way from Georgia to South Carolina in the middle of the night. We're the ones that get the call or like they're supposed to go to the studio and they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, and they can't get their head straight. It's hard enough. And also being the person that has to kind of tell them the hard truths and be like, I don't think we should send the song to your label. They're not going to like it. To be able to talk openly and honestly about everything from their art to their finances to their career and their personal choices it's like it kind of has to be someone that you have a little bit of a vibe with or you feel comfortable with because if not it's just never going to work even the best artist manager relationships like some of the most legendary ones of all time there's a time limit on them in most cases It's the exception to the rule, some of these lifelong things. And it's not because everyone could be doing a great job, but it's like you are so close with your manager, like a best friend and also business partner position. It's like maybe after, I mean, there's a lot of news. We talked about Chance the Rapper. He was legendarily like grew his career with Pat, the manager, Chance the Rapper and Pat the manager. They recently had like a public breakup.
0: Oh, was that the manager's name? He went by Pat the manager.
1: Yeah, that was like kind of his nickname.
0: That's dope. I kind of like that.
1: And I mean, they were like a legendary duo and hailed around the music business as like this amazing visionary duo who did it independently. And as an observer, I think Pat did a brilliant job growing Chance's brand and career. And I don't really know what happened there. There's a lot of like reporting and who knows if it's true or not, but it's sad and it can be shocking, but it doesn't really surprise me because it's like, look, when you're an artist, sometimes it's just like, it feels like it's time to move on to the next thing. And it's like, or maybe something's not going right. And it's like, you just want to change, and sometimes the manager is just collateral damage. I've seen a lot of artists, I mean, not personally, not that have like left us personally, but from observing the industry, I've seen artists leave their management looking for a change, thinking that it was going to be for the better, and then they go to another manager who doesn't know them as well, or they just try to do it on their own, and things just kind of not unravel, but just the trajectory just kind of falls off.
0: Dude, it's the same as relationships. The problem with leaving a relationship is you take you with you
1: exactly
0: (laughs) yeah it's not usually the other person but sometimes you do need to change right that's cool well it's got to be fun to build somebody's career together you know find the artist how do you get through that sort of maturing of a relationship like manage the egos
1: i back to what i said before about liking the people we work with we probably won't get into a situation with an artist who like their ego is like too big to handle but even more so sometimes it's like we have an up-and-coming artist who has a buzzing career, and we're strategizing on how to take them to the next level. And sometimes you need to kind of like stop putting out music, take a little hiatus, maybe clean up your visual appearance on social media. can kind of do a little refresh and maybe pull back and not put out some songs and you have to kind of say to them, like, hey, we got to slow down and stop putting out music. But to a young artist to stop putting out music, they're like, but my fans, like, I can't believe it. Everyone's waiting for me. But like your fans are like, 500 people in your town right now or like 5000 people in your state nobody knows who you are yet nobody's checking for you yet it's about telling the making the artists sometimes who like they think in their world their world is like everything they're the biggest artists in the world to them then we have to be like look we love you we believe in you we think you're the most talented person ever that's why we work with you or we wouldn't be sitting in this room but like i got to tell you like nobody knows who you are it doesn't matter if you don't post on it like (laughs) you know (laughs) like no you know You have a song with a few hundred thousand plays, like we're going for a few hundred million. We got to kind of regroup here. And so it's a lot of like times having to be able to just work with artists that can take a conversation like that and not take it personally.
0: Yeah, I know a podcast personality that maybe could use your help. I don't know. (laughs) I do think I'm probably going to do this thing in seasons because to your point, I don't know. Sometimes I think you got to walk away to sort of refresh and collect thoughts and whatever.
1: I think it's good, like, you know, to have a little break to build up some demand sometime, you know, but also there's something to be said about having constant flow of content. Also, it's like sometimes when you're hot and sometimes when you're on, it's good to just keep feeding that core fan base and growing and riding that trajectory. If you look at, for example, some really popular rappers and buzzing rappers, when they're hot and like they have their hit, like they'll do a hundred features that year. They'll do everything. Dude, like Wayne did back in the day, he was everywhere. And At the time, it seemed like, oh my god, is he oversaturating himself? But that actually helped put him into that like legendary status where it's like, wow, this guy's actually one of the most prolific rappers ever. Like, not only does he have his whole body of work, but then he has all of this additional stuff as well, and that kind of like became part of his legend. That one or two
0: year sprint that he did was insane. I mean, he was everywhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was pretty crazy. And there's some buzzing rappers now that are kind of, I see them trying to do the same model where they're like getting on every like, you know, they're like DaBaby is like a buzzing rapper right now who's all over the charts.
0: Yeah, I listened to one of his songs.
1: So he'll like get on and do a song with like Dua Lipa or whatever pop and very much how Lil Wayne was like, all right, like I'm hot in hip hop. Now I'm going to like blanket the airspace and like make sure everyone in pop music knows who I am as well. It's a good strategy if you can do it.
0: I don't know what I would do if I had that. I, I talk, I, I wish I talked to him more, but he won't return my, my messages anymore. That guy, Cal Scrubby, or Scrooby, however he says his name.
1: Oh, yeah, he's good.
0: Yeah, dude, I listen to him nonstop. I'm definitely a super fan, but he was saying that he has remained independent. And he runs all his own stuff. I think he's his own manager, even. He might have like a college friend that helps him, but he was like, I can't make as much as maybe I could if I was so- like, I'll never be like the Uber star if I'm on my own. But like, the lifestyle that I can create for myself is a good one.
1: For sure. I mean, he's an example of someone who has like a nice steady stream of fans and enough of a fan base where like you can really make a nice little career with yourself. If you're in a traditional record label deal, a traditional label deal is like, you get like a 17% to 20% royalty after you're recouped on all the expenses. But if you are distributing yourself, you could get 80 to 100% of that income directly. So do you
0: think more people going forward are going to take the sort of independent distributor method? Or do you think that's like just a small niche of people that just have a sweet spot that works for them?
1: No, for sure. I mean, they already are. I mean, what's really happening now is there's so much. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of songs being uploaded every day. I mean, if not hundreds of thousands through all of these independent distributors. And just as technology has become, you know, more democratized and if you're a 14 year old rapper, an underserved neighborhood in name, a major city that 10 years ago, you would have had to like get a record deal to have your song on Apple. Or Spotify. Now you can record it and upload it on your phone and it's up there. And if it starts taking off, that could lead to like huge success and bigger deals later. And you see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. So I think it's twofold. Now nobody's waiting for a record deal, everyone's putting out their stuff independently at first to try to create that buzz. And then at the same time, on the high level, these artists that used to be these superstar artists are now clawing their rights back and getting into. Maybe they're not doing it through like DistroKid or TuneCore, but they're doing a deal with Universal or Sony where it's like in the vein of more of a pressing and distribution deal where it's I'm going to own my master's. You're going to take a small fee to market it and to put it out and like more of a distributor relationship like that.
0: What are you listening to now? You have a very eclectic taste. I've always liked your taste of music. Obviously, Stephen A. Clark and Amtrak and all that. I've been listening to Amtrak a lot in my recent playlist. He's high up on my liked songs, so he comes on like every day.
1: And you got to check out Alado Negro. He's a really cool like indie artist that we work with.
0: Is that the dude I saw a picture of him in New York on a Spotify billboard?
1: Exactly. Yeah, he had this for Latin Heritage Month. They gave him a billboard in New York City. So thanks Spotify for that. Yeah, that was pretty cool.
0: That's awesome.
1: His music's awesome. He sings in English and in Spanish, and it's all like electronic bass. He writes it and stuff himself, like, and does a lot of the drums electronically and synths, but then he brings in amazing musicians to play and he has beautiful strings and live drums and stuff. And when he goes out and performs live, sometimes he'll do it with like a 10-piece band. It's crazy. He's actually an old friend of my business partner, Jake Jefferson. And he was kind of self-managed for a long time and had a pretty successful art and independent music career, self-managed. Had his art exhibited at like major museums and had his music featured at, played at festivals. And he was signed to multiple very big independent rock labels. But He basically just came to us when he was at the point where his career was getting so big that he needed a manager, you know, and he needed a team a few years ago. Yeah, and it's been going great since then. He's a great guy, great music, one of my favorite people to just hang out with. A lot of times, you know, I listen to so much contemporary and new music for work all the time and just to keep like a buzz, see what's buzzing, see what my clients are working on that a lot of times at home and in the car, I'm listening to older, calm, relaxing music just to like clear my head.
0: You still rocking Earth, Wind, and Fire?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if I'm partying, you know, a little disco maybe, but like, you know, I'll chill with like some old Simon and Garfunkel like kind of vibe, just do a little palate cleanse. But I mean, there's so much good new music out there. It's insane. Like, I can't even begin to list the amount of good music that is floating around. It's the golden age of content, man. Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite rock bands that have been around for a minute, but they're still active are like Vampire Weekend and Future Islands. I love that kind of pocket of indie rock vibes, but I still listen to a lot of hip hop, a lot of electronic music. There's a singer, Rye, H-R-Y-E, that's like plays with a live band. Actually, my client Amtrak just did a remix for him that's coming out. But really cool, chill indie vibe. There's so much great stuff out there. It's awesome.
0: Well, I got to ask you one thing and then I'll let you go. I've gotten a request to have guests talk about failure, if they're willing. Have you had a crushing blow in your career, or has it all been good for DJ Derek Whalen?
1: There's a few things. I wouldn't say there's been any like really big crushing failure, but there has been. We have a lot of peers in the music business have gone on to have their big hit or have like crazy success. Our thing has always been like really building sustainable careers for these artists, a slow, steady incline. And we haven't really had our crazy, like, you know, some of our contemporaries in the industry, they've had like their fluke hit where it's like, oh, they had their song that went viral on TikTok. And now they just them and their client just bought a new house. And I'm not complaining, like I'm not like asking for any type of like crazy viral TikTok thing without doing any work.
0: <laughs> well, you've also put in a lot of work. So it'd be nice to get that.
1: So sometimes it's like a little it can be frustrating or not disheartening, but it can be frustrating when it's like, wow, we're here, all we think about is doing the best for our artists, fighting for their careers, building them a sustainable career, being true to their art. We're not like legally obligated, but almost being like a fiduciary. We don't do what's best for us. We do what's best for our clients. Like, that's our values. We don't like take a quick deal to get an advance to commission. We do what's right for our client. And then we'll see somebody who like, they just took the first deal so they can get a fat commission. And they're not passionate about artists rights and about the music and everything. And then their clients hit, like they just have their like, song go viral on youtube and it's like nuts and now they're like everyone's saying like this person is music's next genius you know and so it's funny kind of we're sitting back from our standpoint but where we're like wow we work with great artists that we really love that are really talented and look we've had our artists do cool stuff i had a client produce an enrique Iglesias and pitbull song we had an artist produce a katy perry song we have dabbled and can do like the pop cheesy stuff as well that if we want to but right now we're focused on building a curated tasteful, really making our pocket of the industry being good at what we do. Have you seen the funny song that the guy on TikTok sings or whatever? And it's like that stuff's just great. They're killing it. There hasn't been like a crushing blow. But there's just been a lot of having to just keep your eye on the ball and like stick to our values and know what we're doing is kind of bigger than any one hit song. It's about the bigger vision. And then you know, the hit songs will probably come and the big hits will happen. But I mean, I've heard you talk a lot about when you had a great idea, right, like a great investment idea, and then you get out of it, and then it works, and then everyone's hitting you up and congratulating you. We had a client that we built from nothing, from zero fans, like zero Spotify, Instagram, what, like basically a brand new electronic project, and we built him for like five years. I mean, we expended political capital to make this guy happen, to get top-tier agents and turn him into a big electronic festival act, and about got him great like opportunities and stuff got him remix opportunities to remix we created the strategy of like all right you're a festival act but we're gonna get you brand name remixes to with like big well-known artists to establish you as a higher profile artist executed it beautifully whatever ends up one of those remixes gets nominated for a grammy literally like A week after his contract ends with us, a five-year management deal, and he says, I don't know, I think I'm just doing it on my own for now or just see what happens. Literally, the Grammy nominations come out two days later. I'm telling you, every single person that we've ever met in the music industry was calling and sending congratulations about our, and, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, well, we still kind of deserve the congratulations because we, along. I mean, it's really the artist does. It's all about the artist. It couldn't happen without him. And Uh, he executed it great, but we were part of that too. And we built that on the business side, but it was just like, wow, if our artist on a whim didn't just say, I'm just going to kind of see how it feels. Then we would have been at the Grammys with them. I mean, we've been to the Grammys before. It's not that big of a deal, but still just like the sentiment of we would have been part of the celebration, whatever, you know, since then, luckily I've had other clients nominated (laughs) And stuff like our client ape drums just got nominated for a latin grammy this year that was really exciting we've still been able to like carve out our little wins here and there still but show business is tough you know you just got to keep going through and persisting that's kind of the trap we're on you sound like an
0: artist manager to me so that's a good thing i have a feeling that your strategy will pay dividends in the long term
1: thanks i appreciate it
0: all right my man i'm gonna let you go but hopefully COVID ends and i can come down to miami soon and check you out
1: Yeah, let's do it, man. I'd love to see you in person. And thanks for having me, man. It's been fun catching up.